Welcome. You're listening to the Grow Ortho Podcast, presented by HIP. This podcast is dedicated to orthodontists who want to stand strong in their market and be leaders in their community. Now, on to today's show. Dr. Anne-Marie Gorsica, I'm so excited to be chatting with you today on the Grow Ortho Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. Definitely. So just to, to kind of give viewers and listeners a sense, just give us a brief overview of where you are, your practice, how long you've been doing it, et cetera. Well, I've been an orthodontist for 33 years. Uh, when I graduated, I worked in Evanston, Illinois as an associate for one year, and then I moved out to California where I worked in a group practice as the only orthodontist for seven years. And then in 1996, I opened my own practice from scratch in Antioch, California. And um, in my first book, uh, 201 Marketing Tips for Starting uh, a Dental Practice, this book pretty much summarizes what I did the first seven years of my practice to build my practice in a very short amount of time. And uh, as we mentioned in marketing, um, there are so many things you can do, but the most important thing is that you do something, that you always are active and always doing something to further market your practice. And when you start a practice from scratch, you basically are trying to be known as quickly as possible. It's like a political campaign <laughs> and you're running for mayor of your town. So the marketing book will give you ideas how to shake hands, how to meet people, how to get out in the community, how to do internal marketing, and also how to network with your community dentists. What was your motivation in writing your books? Well, I always tell people I write the books I wish I had had. Mm. That I've been in practice 33 years, and I've learned as I've gone along. And I'm a CE junkie. I've heard probably every speaker. I read many, many books. And the first book, the marketing book, 201 Marketing Tips for a Successful Dental or Orthodontic Practice, those are 201 tips of things I actually did to market my own practice. So each of those tips worked for me. And if it brought me even one patient, I thought it was worth writing down in the book. Mm -hmm. My dad was a college professor. He was a mechanical engineering professor. And he wrote a book. And he had the feeling that every person has a book in them. And every person by age 50 has done something with their life that they could help another person. So he really suggested um, that I write the marketing book because he felt that would help a lot of orthodontists. And one thing I like about your books, and I just mentioned this to you earlier, is you focus on implementation. I would say that your coaching services are probably truly implement, implementation services. Mm -hmm. Because I've 
spoken to so many dental assistants and I hired one once and she came to my office and we were at our weekly meeting and the first weekly meeting I went over that week or that month's marketing plan. We were going to deliver donuts to 25 referring offices to say hello and remind them we're there to serve their patients. And so that day at the meeting, I picked up the phone, I ordered the 25 boxes of donuts, I paid for the donuts, I assigned who would pick up the donuts and what day and time they would deliver the donuts. And it's done, right? It took five minutes. And this new dental assistant I hired said to me, Dr. Gorska, I just can't believe it because I just came from this other office and we had a coach and we had a consultant and they came to our meetings and they said, okay, we're gonna do a donut delivery. But then they would leave mm -hmm. and nothing would get done. Yep. So I think you've really identified the secret Achilles heel of orthodontic offices, the implementation. That's really the key to marketing, isn't it? Yeah. Is do it, just do it. That is your, from what I've read, and I've read all your materials that you sent me, I agree with just about 99.5% of every single thing that you say. But I think your secret sauce is accountability and implementation. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that and picking up on it. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a quote, I'm not sure who says it. Um, ideas are easy. Execution is everything. And so, you know, we can come up with all of these ideas and something that I have been, um, guilty of is looking for the shiny magic bullet, you know, and sadly in most cases, it just doesn't exist, right? It takes, doing the work, possibly failing a couple times, and that's okay. That's how you learn. And then get, getting back on track, regrouping, and taking the next step forward. If we don't take a step, then I think that's when we're truly failing. And that's what I hate to see. You know, my, my wife calls me a fixer because she'll I'll come home and she'll start <laughs> telling me problems and I'll like, okay, here's what we got to do. Here's, you know, the next step we need to do. And she's like, hey, I just want to tell you. Like, I don't necessarily want a game plan, but that's the way my brain thinks. So when I'm talking to business owners, you know, mainly who I talk to nowadays is orthodontist for really the past uh, five years, I'm always thinking, how can we fix this? What are, what's the logical steps? Because for the most part, there's four main components of a business, marketing, sales, operations, and finance. And there's only so many levers you can pull in each one. And so small business is completely different than enterprise, big business. You know, you're not uh, private equity funded or VC backed, or you don't have shareholders. And I think that's a big advantage because you can come up with an idea and literally five minutes later, like you just talked about with the donuts, boom, implemented. Yes. And I'm very grateful. I'm, I'm a solo practitioner and I agree with you 100%. We can turn on a dime. Mm -hmm. I think especially during COVID and I'm in California and COVID was really, 
you know, a difficult time for many practices. Yeah. But we really did quite well because it's so easy for us to make a change, do what's necessary, cut back, move forward. Uh, it, it, you know, a decision can be made. There's no meeting. There's one owner and the decision is made that day. I really like the solo practice model. Many years ago, when I got after I got married, I did entertain the thought of maybe opening a second practice. My husband and I talked about it. My husband's an orthopedic surgeon and mm. I had a little baby at the time. And my husband said, you know, Anne-Marie, life is just perfect right now. Why would you want to complicate it by a second location and working more days or hiring more people? Let's just enjoy what we've built. And there is quite a bit of pleasure in that. I think the first seven years of your orthodontic practice, you really work hard with the marketing. You are just go, go, go. You're like out in the community every week and attending every event and doing all kinds of things. And then after seven years, um, you get to a high level and then maintenance becomes the key. And one thing I learned that I didn't really know, around year 10, everything you've done, you've got to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Because every case you finish, you've got to replace. So marketing never ends. It continues all the way through. They don't teach you that in dental school. So I think years 10 to 15 are very critical years because there's a tendency to want to kick back and think, oh, we don't have to do so much of this or so much of that. Once you get to about year 25, believe it or not, you get the second generation. So right now I'm treating a lot of children of the patients that I treated 20 years ago, Yeah, which is really fun. Makes me feel old, but <laughs> it's really fun. And one marketing tip that I mentioned in the book, uh, 201 Marketing Tips for Growing a Practice, is sending 10-year retainer check postcards. And the postcard I describe in the book, uh, we write on it, have you been wearing your retainer, your orthodontist cares? 10 years out, most people need a new retainer. Mm -hmm. It's just gross. By that point, you know. <laughs> Need, you I need a imagine. refresher. Yeah. But not only do you get new patients coming in for new retainers, some of them will need spring clip aligners, which are, is active treatment. Some of them might choose to do Invisalign. The postcard goes to the family home. Maybe they don't come in. Maybe their brother or sister comes in. Maybe their children come in. Maybe their parents come in. That has been a pretty good outreach project for us. And every year we try to send maybe 200 to 400 have you been wearing your retainer postcards. And uh, it's a worthwhile activity. Uh, I can imagine. And there's there's all these things that you've thought about. And, you know, obviously you lay it out in the books. But I find that you obviously don't want to be status quo. It's clear that you want to be exceptional and operate, you know, at, at, as the best as you can. And was it always that way, you know, you wanting to kind of push the envelope and be a high performer? And, and where did that 
where did that start and and who maybe were some of your mentors or inputs? Well, I was very fortunate uh, when I was at Harvard School of Dental Medicine. I had the opportunity to get a master's in public health at the Harvard School of Public Health. And in that, and it was in the Department of Health Management and Policy. And we had a very good marketing course. Hmm. Um, it was taught by a Harvard Business School professor, and we did case studies. And I still remember one. How would you sell um, Prell shampoo versus Suave? <laughs> <laughs> you might remember Prell shampoo. They had the advertisement of a pearl dropping yeah. in the green bottle. And it was considered a very high-end shampoo versus Suave. Suave, Suave does what theirs does for less, right? Hmm. And we studied all these case studies, and it was very fascinating. And we we went through all aspects of business. And then I graduated, and then I went to my first orthodontic meeting. And quite frankly, I was shocked. I was shocked by some of the things that were being said. And I just thought, wow, um, boy, there's a lot of room for improvement here. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll tell you the thing that shocked me because you weren't around then. But <laughs> my first orthodontic meeting, there was a consultant. She was very famous. And she said, when the patient comes for the exam, just put in the separators that day. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you don't have an informed consent. You don't have the permission of the family. You don't know if they're going to start treatment. You have no records. And you're going to put the separators in. And when I started my practice, I had so many patients coming to me. Can you take these separators out? <laughs> and I, I thought that was very bad advice. And I'm like, where are these people getting their, their training? But yeah. most of them had no practice ownership or formal training in health management and policy or law. You know, we, we do have to abide by um, laws. Yeah. Um, as an orthodontic profession, we've kind of been winging it. And the thing I think is that big management consulting firms aren't going to work with dental practices. I mean, when you think of the major management consultants in the United States of America, an orthodontic practice is too small for them. Mm -hmm. And even some consultants uh, that I think are very good uh, that could help dentistry, uh, their starting commitment is 40000 a year. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of money for a solo practitioner. What I've tried to do in my lifetime is illuminate basic management principles, which I know you understand, and I know you understand sales principles. And I've tried to take those and apply them to the dental or orthodontic industry. And I hope that people will read. I think reading is just like such a wonderful form of education because it's immediate, it's lasting, and it's um, economical. So I'm so glad that you've written your books. And I, I always say I write the books I wish I had. I do try to write in my books things that have gone wrong for me. My most enlightening book is probably the Take Action book. Yep. Because it's in that book that I confess that I had 
I've had many treatment coordinators in my in my career. I've had about maybe nine. I would say one was excellent. I would say two were very good. I'd say three were okay. <laughs> and then there were a few very poor ones. Mm -hmm. And the thing I learned about, I don't know, maybe seven years ago is that implementation is key in many areas, but verification by yes. the owner. Yeah. So when your treatment coordinator tells you, I've made a hundred calls. Okay, show me the list. Show me your report. Show me the check marks, which ones you've called. Now, I'm sorry uh, if some people think that that's micromanagement. However, I was very disappointed that I had one treatment coordinator who actually was slacking off. And that's, and, and, and this is someone who literally I invested $27,000 in her training. Mm. You know, I flew people into my office to train her. So it wasn't like she wasn't trained. It was her own initiative that she wasn't following through. And it was at that point in my career, about 20 years in, that I said, you know what? I'm going to make these calls myself. And the way we do it in my practice is we do the exam. We hope they start that day. We do promote same-day starts. If they don't start that day, we call them back two days later. And two days is a critical time because they haven't had time to go for a second opinion. And chances are they're not going to go for a second opinion. So if you call them at two days, you have a very, that's a hot lead. You have a very good chance of scheduling them. If they don't schedule at two days, then we call them two weeks later and we try to schedule them. My treatment coordinator makes those first two calls. But if they don't schedule that first month, I make the monthly calls. This has been very good for our conversion rate. When I started this program in my office, I literally had 907 patients on my pending list that had not given a yes or a no. And I'm happy to report now that that list is so cleaned up that right now I, I probably have 35 people on that list. Wow. And I'm very happy with that. And how long does it take me to call 35 people? Two hours maximum. Yeah. I've got two hours. And I tell myself, each call I make is worth $3,500 to me. That's how much my call is worth to my practice. Hmm. Now, do I have time for that call? I certainly do. <laughs> <laughs> In my practice, uh, which I would say is probably medium size, it works for me. I mean, I love that. And to go back to, you know, the the main point, I think it's you want to trust people, but you also have to verify. Trust, but verify. And trust is earned. Correct. You know, it's earned. It should not just be given. And I see so many owners, managers, leaders, supervisors. Oh, yeah, um, that's what Johnny does or that's what Sally does. And it's like, okay, when's the last time you looked into that? And they're like, oh, well, you know, uh, you, we may meet so often or, and largely it's, they don't really verify. 
And so I always ask people, hey, when's the last time you listened to a new patient call? You know, and they're like, uh, oh, uh, never. You know, that's, you know, Jill at the front desk does that. And it's like, hey, that's great. But to your point, when you ask about the the list to call for pendings, what if um, they are doing their job, but their conversion rate of getting those people back in is extremely low? Whereas, you know, if you had somebody excellent in the role, you know, here's here's kind of what the conversion rate should be. So let's just say they they still are calling the list. They're being diligent, but they're down here. Someone else is up here. Well, maybe they're not meant for sales, especially if you've spent, you know, close to 30K to train them. Yes. I mean, I, that, and that's what we find a lot of times, too. It's, it's very interesting that you say that because the person uh, that I trained, the consultant tape recorded her and he said she was good. And he said she was better than most. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that she didn't have the skill. Right. She didn't have the motivation. Yeah. And uh, I've also found that to be a treatment coordinator, you must be extremely focused, no interruptions. You've, you've got to really concentrate on the success of that job. Life changes. You might hire a treatment coordinator who's 27 and she is top notch. But five years later, she has four kids and they're calling her during the day, interrupting her schedule, telling her she's they're getting home from school. And she's just not focused like she was five or 10 or 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. So you've got to consider that also. I think also a great treatment coordinator has a winner's mentality yeah. that they're like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna score, I'm gonna get this. You know, they, they have a certain excitement. Like when they start a case, they're like really into it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And um, they're not afraid to get no for an answer. And if they do get no for an answer, they ask why. Uh, no, we won't be starting. W would you mind if I asked why? oh, your office is too expensive for us. Well, is it the down payment or is it the monthly payment? It's the monthly payment. It's too high. Okay, what if we added three months or six months to your contract and it went from 200 to 150? Could you afford that? Oh, I can afford that. Or what if you said, would you like to do care credit? With care credit, you can do zero down payment and you can have equal monthly payments, even extending out five years. And your monthly payment could be maybe 120 a month. Does that sound good to you? That's a very good option. I like care credit with Invisalign because the Invisalign lab bill is very expensive. Mm -hmm. And if you're only charging $300 down payment, you're not going to cover the lab bill for Invisalign. And you don't want to end up with, you know, 20 Invisalign cases that you haven't collected the down payment for. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, care credit is very good for Invisalign. 
Yeah, that's amazing. Now, I want to hone in on that book, which I've got all your books here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, and you may or may not know this about me, um, but I was uh, I went to school to be a designer. Um, and I when I came back home to Pensacola from New York City, I was in debt and uh, you know I was just starting hip, our, our company. And so I took an adjunct professor job at a community college and I was teaching design. And they told me that I failed more people than any other design uh, professor <laughs> there. One of the things that I asked in a class was, hey, tell me who your mentors are. Tell me what designers you're looking up to, because what would Kobe Bryant be without Michael Jordan? What would LeBron be without Kobe and Michael? And, and uh, typically when you find a great person, I guess there is that one exceptional person who's like just aloof and like, well, I've just you know, done it this way and I'm really, really good. But most people, that's not the case. You know, Michael Jordan didn't make his varsity team. Kobe Bryant played uh, a whole season when he was younger where he didn't score one point. And so for me, you know, mentorship and I think a lot of other uh, people, um, especially the, the greats you look at, they had mentorship, they had inputs, they had people they looked up to. When I ask treatment coordinators in practices, hey, who do you look up to in terms of sales? Have you read these books? Typically, it's, it's, you, you get zero. Mm. How important do you think that is for maybe not in the beginning to necessarily hire someone, but if you're going to train them how, you know, and they're going to be great, how important do you think that is? Well, we're always educating ourselves. Yeah. And in my practice, uh, that's why I think the weekly team meeting to go over, either, if you want to have a consultant come, have them come. But uh, we are constantly reading books, trying to improve ourselves. So, for example, um, the Take Action book. I read... And you can see in the bibliography about 65 sales books to glean the best practices from the best salespeople. What do they do? And one thing I agree with you that I've read your materials and you, you state to call the patient at least six times. I would say seven is the magic number. Mm -hmm. um, but... I would take it even further and say, I would never give up until you get a yes or a no. Agreed. I've had patients come back from having done their exam nine years ago to start Invisalign treatment. I've had surgery cases come back from seven years ago to start their surgery treatment. And um, I remember this one surgery case, the young lady just got her braces off. She said, Dr. Gorsica, thank you for not giving up on me. Wow. So uh, why give up? Yeah. Why give up? Hey, if you're an orthodontist listening to this podcast and wondering, how does this work for my practice? I actually have some ideas, but I also have some questions. Go ahead and click below in the description, book a discovery call with one of our practice advisors who can find out exactly where your practice is at now, where you want to be, 
and then create that bridge to get you there faster and easier. So if that interests you, go ahead and click that link in the description. Thanks so much for watching or listening to the Grow Ortho podcast. I'll tell you, Luke, one thing I learned which really surprised me when I started calling patients myself the monthly calls. The first surprise I had is that once you get past that one month, in my opinion, the average one of the average time of those pending list patients to get started is 12 to 14 months. I wish you could say everything you just said again. <laughs> they are late starters. Yeah. They are late starters. Look, you come in, you want treatment. Okay, great. The people that are ready, they're going to get started. Okay. The people that need to ask their husband for a check, they're going to start two days later. The people that need to arrange their schedule, they're going to start two weeks later or by the end of the month. The people that don't start that month, they need to make arrangements. You know, there's something like many parents tell me, oh, I need to start, I need to finish paying for this child. Then I'm going to start this child. Or we need to get our daughter off to college. Then next year we're going to start this child. You know, they have their lives planned out and they just need to schedule the next step. When I would call patients on that pending list after a month, many of them would start the next year or, you know, a few months later. And sometimes they would tell me, we're not going to start this year. Call me back in January. So we started a separate observation list. These are the people we call in January because they... They're not going to start this year, but they're going to start next year. And also, your perception of how many times you call the patient versus their perception of how many times you've called is completely different. So, for example, many treatment coordinators will say, I don't want to be pushy, right? How many times have you heard that excuse? That is yeah. an excuse. A million times. A million, that, that is the number one excuse. I don't want to be pushy. You're not being pushy. This is your job. This is excellent customer service. You're making it easy for the patient. This is excellent service above and beyond when you call them. One woman I called and I said, hi, this is Dr. Gorska calling. I'm just calling to ask if you've given any more thought to starting Sally's orthodontic treatment and if you're ready to get started at this time. And then you're silent. Don't speak for 30 seconds. Look at your watch. Don't speak for 30 seconds. Whoever speaks first loses. Okay. There's a pregnant pause. And then the mother speaks. Yes, I've been wanting to get Sally started. I know you've called four times and I've been meaning to get back to you. Great. But I've actually called that patient 12 times. Mm -hmm. But she thinks I've called her four times. 
That's how many calls registered in her mind. So you may think you're being pushy, but the patient or the mother only recalls 25% of your outreach efforts. Have you ever had anyone say you've called too many times? I've never had that response, ever. I feel like I've, uh, to some degree, died and gone to heaven because <laughs> I could literally talk about this till doomsday. It's so interesting because, you know, we created a proprietary, uh, it's actually a patent pending secret shop tool. And the reason why we did it is exactly what you're talking about. And we find that in most cases, a little less than half of offices we secret shop do not even call us one time. Oh. And then so many of our partners will hear on on calls, and this is why we created software to track everything, why we wrote the books, why we have coaching. They'll say, well, we called them uh, one time and left a voicemail. They must not want to come in. And so, oh. you know, there's just yeah. all this. And, and that's why I bring up largely I find people, because the scheduling role, and that's why I wrote that front desk book, it is a sales role. If this being on the phone all day is challenging. I mean, I did phone sales uh, when I was 21, uh, maybe 20, and sold the New York Times. That's a challenging job. And so you're on the phone, you're going to get a lot of no's, you're going to get people hanging, especially if you're running Facebook ads, Instagram ads. You have to have that resilience. You have, like you talked about, you have to be okay with getting no's. And you have to be skeptically optimistic. Oh, they hung up. Mm -hmm. Maybe there was a bad connection. Maybe they were busy. Maybe they didn't know who I was because they don't have my number saved. I'll just call them back. Mm -hmm. I'll just send them a text message. I'll call them back. Uh, if I don't hear from the text, I'll try them back in two hours just to make sure they got it. Right. Uh, well, I find that people don't want to be skeptically optimistic. They don't want to contact people multiple times. And... Then they'll report back to their management or doctor, these are bad opportunities. There is no bad opportunity. There is no bad opportunity. Yeah. We love all our patients. We love all our patients. How could we say that they're bad in any way? I really think people need to read your books, maybe my books, and, and you know look at it from a different perspective. And I think the data tells the story. You know, are you where you want to be? Are you at capacity? Do you, is your schedule completely full? Are you, you know, is your conversion rate 100%? If all those things are yes, well, okay, maybe you don't need it. Everything's perfect. I haven't had one person tell me they're at max capacity. In fact, the big thing that I hear all the time is we just need more new patients. And it's like, okay, um, let's go look at your website. Let's pull every form submission for the past year, and let's look and see when they were contacted. Oh, I don't even know who gets that notification when somebody fills out the form on my way. And it's like, oh, well, let's start there, you know? Um, well, how about the missed exam list? Yeah. Okay. That's another thing I took over as the doctor. When I took that over, it had 250 missed exams on it. 50% of those people immediately rescheduled when they got my call. Wow. 50% first time. 
now on my missed exam list, I call it every month. I hope we never have a missed exam because I tell my front desk, if it's the patient's exam time and they are five minutes late, you are going to call them and you're going to ask, where are you? They might say, I forgot. You can say, how far away are you? You can still make it. They might be in the grocery store. They might be in traffic. You can tell them, we still want to see you. Keep coming. We still want to see you. Or do you need directions? Right? But if someone does miss their exam, they should be rescheduled immediately that day for the next day or the next week. You don't want to lose those people. So now on my missed exam list, I have four people. And maybe I have your secret caller on my <laughs> list. But um, that's another thing to stay on top of. And once you get it all cleaned up, and you've only got maybe four people, or maybe ten, how hard is it to call ten people? I mean, that will take you 15 minutes. Yeah. It's nothing. Yep. The thing with me is um, I usually make my calls either on a day off, like a Monday, or during lunch. And I go in my office, I close the door, no one interrupts me. This is a big problem for treatment coordinators because they're trying to make calls, then someone at the front desk needs help. Or maybe someone needs help with records. Or maybe they get a phone call. Or they get pulled away. So in my book, the green book, Take Action, I put in there, give your treatment coordinator an hour of power. I call it the hour of power. Put her in the room, put a sign on the door. Do not disturb until two o'clock or whatever. And do not allow anyone to go into that room or interrupt her so that she can stay focused. I think that's huge. I mean, um, again, to go along with that, I'll tell this. And I, I want to reference some of the these books that you you have in in at the end of your book. Um, 65 books you went through, I guess, in writing this book. But um, yeah, I mean, we will find people, and I think largely this transcends uh, orthodontics, that are generalist, not specialist. So by that, I mean, uh, well, my TC is also the scheduler. She also verifies insurance. She also comes and helps me in the clinic. Um, and she's, uh, you know, partly my executive assistant. And it's like, well, that's probably not going to be good, you know, uh, if you want to get new patients. Then uh, we'll, we'll go in an office, and um, it's kind of like musical chairs between two people on who's going to be TC for the hour or the day. Okay, well, let's look at uh, A versus B and their conversion rate. Well, you know, A has 50% and B's 80%. Well, I'm pretty sure B needs to stay in the sales position. And um, this one practice that I'm referencing, they they took our advice and their conversion rate, you know, went way up overall. And really we promoted to them, hey, don't just do this in this role. Let's create specialists everywhere because then you're going to be way more efficient. Um, 
And, you know, when you're calling those patients, I think to your point for a solid hour, once you get in a rhythm and you're in Mm -hmm. your state of flow, especially as a salesperson, you don't want to be interrupted. And it's enjoyable. Yeah. Honestly, I think it's enjoyable. My husband sort of makes fun of me. Okay. And some things I write in my book, my husband is my my expert editor. <laughs> and sometimes he'll cross things out and say, Anne-Marie, you cannot put that in the book. You know, men are going to be reading this book. You can't put in, use different color fluorescent markers with sparkles and, <laughs> you know, write little notes to yourself because that's not going to fly. But when I call my list, I do that. I, you know, I have different colors and I put yes and you know, I write little notes and I, I make it as fun as possible. And um, and you've got to enjoy what you do. You can't dread it. You know, if if you I, I've, I've had some people tell me I'll do any role in the office. I don't want to be treatment coordinator. Mm-hmm. They hate that job. And I say, why do you hate it? She, I don't want to get a no. I, it hurts my feelings. It hurts my feelings to get a no. If I get a no. I take it as an opportunity to find out why would they say no? Like, what am I missing? Did I, you know, I always tell my, my exams, I want to be your top choice. So even if you go to, for a second opinion, oh, I'm going for a second opinion. Is it the treatment or the price? What is it that you're looking for? Is it a different treatment or a different price? Oh, it's a different price, a lower price. We are not the lowest price. I can tell you that. I said, and I tell the patients, if you want the lowest price available, then I can refer you to the dental school in San Francisco and you can drive to San Francisco for the lowest price. But people don't want to drive to San Francisco. It's, you know, tough parking. You're going to pay $20 for parking and explain to them you won't be the lowest price. But you're going to be the best results. They won't need new, they won't need retreatment. And you guarantee satisfaction. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. You know, we don't take the braces off until you're 100% satisfied. We guarantee satisfaction. One little quote that you might enjoy that came from one of the references in that book, and I'd have to look up to tell you exactly what book it is, but it was one of the best sales books I ever read. I really loved it. The, the gentleman who's the sales expert wrote the phrase, there is no Santa Claus, there is no Easter bunny, and the customer will never call you back. <laughs> Just accept they are never going to call you back. So don't wait for it. Yeah. Just be proactive and make it convenient for them. Absolutely. And I think that's an important message. I think that's an important message. We even have some people who do get callbacks and they still struggle to close the deal. So, I mean, there, there's so many things you, you have to, like you, to go back to what you were saying in the beginning, you have to do your verification. Are we following up? Where Show me how we follow it. What's the system in place? Um, and I think any good owner, I don't think it's micromanaging. I think that's you know, doing your job as the owner, you're, yes. you're, you should be responsible in Correct. checking those things. Yeah. Well, when speaking of verification, even just verifying what's my end of day, what's my production, what's my collection, 
How many new exams did we schedule today? And then verifying that the money actually made it into the bank. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's an important job. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, some of the names here, Zig Ziglar, Gino Wickman. Um, this is not a name people will know, but David Moffat, I interviewed him years ago. Great book. Uh, Brian Tracy, John Gordon. Um, how did you know, I mean, Ray Dalio, how did you know to read these books? Michael Gerber. Um, did you research? Did you, were you already studying those people? My family and I and my son, we have this tradition every Friday night. We go to Barnes and Noble. We each get a book and then we go out to dinner. That's our Friday night, end of the week. That's ritual. amazing. I love that. So we we are we are readers in my family. We always have a book with us. When you get interested in a topic, um, you just keep researching. You know, who are the leaders in this field? What are the most important books in this field? Um, who are the experts in this field? And you just keep looking for um, information that will help you. Yeah. I mean, that's basically the way. And I'm sure you do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm big into quotes and, you know, reading through this book, every quote, you know, I get to most of them I know and I've read their books, but it's like, and that's where I started to pick up. You and I are on the same page. I mean, I would walk out of my office and go show somebody, look, Look at this. You got to read this book. It's obvious that you know sales. It's obvious that you know sales just by your printed material, what you've written here. Years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to speak at the AAO and I spoke about the Take Action Green Book. And I asked the members of the audience, how many treatment coordinators in this audience? And hands went up. And then I asked... Um, how many times do you call your pending patient before you give up? I would say the average response is twice. And I, I told that audience, never give up until you get a yes or a no. I love never that. Never give up. Yeah. I was at a conference. It was a small conference. Uh, put on by an, an orthodontic practice, and I, I've heard this many times, um, but the question was, uh, you've probably heard this so many times, um, when should I start charging my no-shows? And, uh, you know, I, I hear this probably, I don't know, five or ten times a year. Yeah, we, we had a, a, a lot of no-shows no last month. Um, some of them want to get back on the schedule. Should Should we get a, a down payment or... You know, should we get their credit card info? And, you know, again, I would love to know where people are finding this information because what I find is people want it to be more convenient for them. The owner, the office, we want it to be easy. You know, um, everybody should show up. If they don't show up, they should put down, you know, uh, $50 to hold their spot. They should all call us to confirm their appointment. They should all fill out their new patient paperwork before they show up. They should do all these things. But when you look at these brands who have really figured it out, let's look at big brands, Chick-fil-A, 
Starbucks, Ritz Carlton. It's all flipped, meaning we do have. Come on in. Yeah, come on in. We want to make it easy for you. And you can see why they're thriving. And if that changes, they won't thrive because you can go look at Burger King. Right now, there's there's no cars in the drive-thru. Chick-fil-A right now, it's wrapped around the building five times. Why is that? Because they make it easy. You're not going to wait. You know, I worked at Chick-fil-A. If people wait longer than five minutes, the whole company freaks out. You know, it's like a literally a war breaks out in the building. That is an important point. And in your office, your new exam should always be the top on the list because you do not want them to wait. They should be greeted at the door, brought into the exam room immediately. And when they're ready, the treatment coordinator comes out, doctor, you know, she's already got the health history. My treatment coordinator sign here. I sign it. You're ready to go with them. I agree with you in my experience. The minute I get the sense that the patient and family has made up their mind that they're going to start treatment. And one thing you can do is say, well, would you like braces or Invisalign? And you can even hand them the models. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking of braces or Invisalign? I'd like braces. Which type would you like? Would you like this type or this type? I'd like this type. Stop. Okay, Sally, let's, we have an opening tomorrow at 9 a.m. Let's get her started. And I do think it's helpful for the doctor to know when is the next available opening. I mean, if you can do a same-day start, if the treatment coordinator can do the records right then, obviously do it. If someone uh, in my office, I might ask a treatment coordinator, I might ask one of my assistants, can you stay late tonight? Because I close at 5 or 6 on Thursdays. If someone could stay at 5 and do the start with me from 5 to 6 p.m., I'm more than happy to pay overtime for that. Mm -hmm. And we will start the case that day. Or even if I have to start a case during lunch, I'm more more than happy to do that. Um, I usually start my day at 930. If someone wanted to come in at 830 the next morning, I'm more than happy to do that. I always tell my team, I am not the limiting factor. You guys are the limiting factor. I will come in anytime, <laughs> right? As the business owner. Yeah. I mean, I would stay till 9 p.m., you know. It's really the team that's the limiting factor. I like your incentive idea. I think it's good for the office to have a goal. In my office, the goal starts, everyone gets the same bonus from mm. the treatment coordinator to the front desk to the person who put the braces on. I just think it's a better teamwork uh, strategy. Yeah. And then we have our bonuses um, gradual as the number increases, the bonus increases. Yeah, I love that. I, I believe the owner of EOS, is, is that uh, his company, um, Gino Wickman? Gino Wickman? Yeah. Yes. So he wrote the foreword of your book. Yes. Uh, do you know him personally? Well, I would <laughs> love to know him personally. I have read all his books, okay. every single one of them. And we have implemented in our office 
every single thing that he recommends. I think that his book Traction yep. is one of the best books that any business owner can ever read. I called his company and asked if if we could work with them. And um, the starting, I'll, I'll tell you, it was 40000 a year. Mm. I didn't think in my office that was worth it. Now, someone who did work with EOS is Jay Bowman in Kalamazoo, Michigan. If you'd ever like to interview him, he actually yeah. worked with EOS for one year. Um, but we have implemented all of their systems and I wanted him to write the forward to the book. So I contacted him through Jay Bowman, uh, who used them. And I was able to get in touch with his uh, assistant. Um, and through emails, uh, he finally agreed to write the forward. <laughs> and um, it worked out great. It worked out great. Now, for my last book, um, Bernie Stoltz wrote the forward to the leadership book. And I did work with Fortune Management and with Bernie. Uh, I think he's an excellent um entrepreneurial uh, coach. Um, and I was very happy that he wrote the forward to the book. Um, I was happy that I got an endorsement from um, John Gordon mm -hmm. for my latest book, the leadership book. Yeah. And um, I got an endorsement from a woman, the second endorsement from Amy Hyatt, executive coach of the table group. Okay. which is the company of Patrick Lencioni. Oh, wow. And I did work with her for two years. She was my leadership coach. I, I was in an organization where I was president and um, I was on leading the board of directors uh, made up of orthodontists. And uh, it was quite challenging for me. And I wanted to be the best leader I possibly could. And Leadership is not easy. So I did try to hire the best coach I could for leadership. And I did learn an awful lot from the table group. And all of all of Patrick Lencioni's books are great. The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Oh, yeah. Um, the Ideal Team Player. Um, I like his approach. It's very realistic. And I think he understands uh, what business owners go through. Agreed. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm curious if you hear this, but uh, I just heard this the other day. Hey, Luke, um, we like the information, but we don't have time to do it. You know, we're busy seeing patients, putting on braces, and, and this particular practice, and this can work in, in some practices, it's the two doctors and then everybody else. And I see this all the time. I just did a org chart uh, review with somebody else where one doctor, everybody else, no leadership. So a lot does fall on the owner. But if the owner is not going to take charge and maybe work outside of hours, work on some weekends, and everything's a season, right? It doesn't mean like you're going to do this for five years. Who right. is going to do it? And so Again, to go back to the hamster wheel, if nothing changes, nothing changes. The leader leads by example. The mm. leader leads by example. So I really should be the hardest working person in my office, 
right? Because I want my team to work hard. I have a rule. I'm always the last one out the door. I don't desert whoever is left in my office. If the tree, if the uh, records coordinator is still printing records, I just go and sit in my office and I wait for her to be done because uh, I don't want anyone to feel that they're alone. Uh, we have a thing in our office that no one leaves for the day without asking every single team member, does anyone need help? Wow. Does anyone need help? I'm reading an excellent book right now. I think you would love it. It's called Unreasonable. It's a customer service book from the restaurant industry. I just read this yesterday, in fact, that in a very high-end uh, restaurant, three-star or four-star Michelin restaurant, they have sign language that if someone pulls on their lapel like this, that is their sign language. I need help. I'm stressed out. Yeah. I'm running behind. We are a team. That's why I called my last book, One Team, One Score. We're all in it together. It's not that one person does really well and another person's stressed out. No, we're all in it together. We're there to help each other. And um, you will find as the practice owner, your team members might not want to have a weekly team meeting. They might think it's a waste of time. But it isn't. That's how you get things done. That's how you initiate new projects is you need to meet, plan it out, get it done. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a, a lot of people are nervous of, of doing something like that or they, they might feel awkward even in the, the morning huddle because they don't have a format or they tried it once and um, it seemed like the uh, – team didn't like it or, or wasn't bought into it. And it's like, Hey, try a new format. You know, did you research the format? Did you make it fun? Was it structured in any way? Um, and so just because something doesn't work one time, doesn't mean to just throw it out the window. You know, right. if, if I did that, well, I wouldn't have a business. One thing that uh, I really like that Gino Wickman, uh, states for his team meetings at the end Give yourself a score. Finish the meeting on time. Last five minutes. Okay, everyone, here's a blank piece of paper. How did we do today? Not how did I do or how did you do? How did we do today as a team? And when you start your meetings, you might score a six or a seven. You might People might think the meetings are boring, they're too long, whatever. Okay, let's fix that. Let's fix that. After you get through about a year, maybe, you're going to be getting tens because everyone's going to come prepared. Everyone's going to bring their reports. They want to get done as soon as possible. They give their report. You report, you know, go around the room twice. You're done. And it actually becomes very easy. Now, the morning huddle, I've never mastered the morning huddle. That's why I named my blue book Beyond the Morning Huddle. Yeah. Because every consultant I ever met prior to you, if I, I don't know, they ask you about your practice. The first thing they say is, do you have a morning huddle? <laughs> well, for me, I don't think that's the most important thing. I, I, 
people show up. They all show up at different times. Some show up half an hour early. Some show up a minute early. Some show up late. I just don't think first thing in the morning, people are as focused as they are if you have a weekly team meeting and say it's from 11 to 12 and everyone's focused. Yeah. So the morning huddle, my morning huddle is I usually call from the car, my front desk, financial coordinator. I say, what's new? She says this, that, and that. What's on the schedule today? This, that, and that. If she wants to call the team, she's offsite. If she wants to meet with the team in the office, she does that. But um, that's my morning huddle. It's just for me. I just want to know what's going on that day, what's on the schedule, that kind of thing. But you um, found what works for you. And I think that's, that's what works for that's me. That's the key thing. And yes, and I'm not a morning person. I'm not a morning person. My best time to be in a meeting is not 8.30 in the morning or 9.30 in the morning or 8 in the morning. I'm much better at 11. And I noticed in Target, okay, because I am fascinated by these team meetings. Target opens at what time? 8 a.m.? Mm -hmm. 7 a.m.? I don't know. They don't have their huddle right when they open. They, I've seen in Target. I've seen the meeting. It's about 11 a.m. Hmm. I figured, hey, if they do it that way, it's okay for me to do it that way. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> One of the teams I lead, we have just an end-of-day huddle, and we'll just recap the day. You know, so and that's good. Yeah, I think there there can be a hundred ways, probably more, to skin the cat. The key is, I think it goes back to communication, and largely, when you find broken teams, broken businesses, broken processes, it all goes back to communication. Somebody didn't know. This person didn't talk to this person. Somebody updated the SOP. This person wasn't notified. Uh, you know, this person has no one-on-one, -on -one, so they were never given any feedback, whatever it is, you've got to make sure that there's touch points and communication, I think, in any thriving business. And one thing Patrick Lencioni writes in his books about communication is, and I think Gino Wickman writes about this also, clarity. Clarity, yeah. Being clear. You have to repeat something three times. Not everyone is going to get it the first time. So if you have an important message, make sure you say it more than once. Some people will get it the first time, but some people won't, or they won't hear it, or they won't process it. So as a leader, it is good to repeat yourself a couple of times. Yeah, I agree with that as well. So if viewers or listeners want to get a hold of you, I know they're going to have more questions. What's the best way to contact you? Well, I'll give you my personal email address, which is amgortho at aol.com. Or you can call me at Gorsica Orthodontics at 925-757-9000 in Antioch, California. And um, I look forward to meeting the listeners at future meetings in the future. Absolutely. And I wish everyone the most success possible. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for being on the Grow Ortho podcast. I, I really appreciate it. And I've learned a ton and it was amazing to finally meet you. Well, you're great, Luke. And I, I loved reading all your materials and you're spot on. And uh, thank you for helping orthodontists. Yes, absolutely. 
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about HIP or any of the topics in this episode, send an email to hello at hipcreativeinc.com. That's hello at hipcreativeinc.com. Or jump over to our website at hip.agency.